So welcome to the green room for Disrupt TV. I've always wanted to say live from Las Vegas, and we truly are in Las Vegas. So anyways, welcome, everybody. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Bala Ashar, our excellent producer, L, and of course, more importantly, our three amazing guests. So we're going to introduce them from reverse order. And more importantly, where are you guys coming in from and what are we going to talk about today? So Andy and Al, where are you coming in from? What are we going to talk about today? Well, I'm Andy. And I'm Al. And we're going to be talking about... Uh, uh, overcoming bias and uh, our new book that just launched this week. And congratulations! Chicago. All right, go Chicago, Chicagoland. All right, Yuri, welcome to the show. Where are you coming in from, and what are we talking about? So um, I'm Yuri uh, Levine, founder of Ways and author of the book "Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution." I'm coming in from Tel Aviv, so pretty far away, and I will be happy to speak about my book. Thank you. We love having you here. Paul, welcome. Where are you coming in from? What are we talking about today? Well, coming into you from planet Earth and specifically New Jersey. And uh, I lead our technology business at Accenture. And uh, there's this thing called generative AI that I thought uh, might be an interesting thing to talk about. I've never heard of it. Not a hot topic. <laughs> I have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> so, hey, welcome, everybody. And more importantly, we'll throw it back to L. So ready? Everybody ready? Here we go. All right. Three, two, one. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Ray is a regular television business and tech news contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, Bloomberg, CNBC. He's one of the most influential futurists on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thank you, my awesome co-host, Bala Astro, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. But more importantly, he's got a new book called Boundless. It is the number one business management book on Amazon, and it's not even out yet. Make sure you put your orders in. Executives around the world pay attention to every one of his inspirational and insightful tweets. And when he's not hosting, keynoting, or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses on ZDNet. But as we say every week, it's not about us. It's about our amazing guests. And we have hit a milestone today. Bala, who's our amazing guest? Folks watching, get your popcorn out. Put your seatbelts on. You're about to go on a mind-expanding uh, ride for the next 20 minutes. One of our favorite guests, Paul Darty's Accenture's 
Group Chief Executive Technology and Chief Technology Officer. Paul leads all aspects of Accenture's technology business. He's responsible for Accenture's technology strategy, driving innovation through R&D, Accenture Labs, leveraging emerging technologies to bring newest innovation to clients globally. Paul is a passionate advocate of gender equality in the workplace and sponsoring STEM-related inclusion and diversity initiatives. He serves on the board of directors of, of Girls Who Code and was recognized by Institute of Women's Leadership with the Guys Who Get It Award. I love that. For supporting diversity and workplace advancements of women, especially in technology and other STEM fields. He's also a sponsor of Accenture's partnership with Code.org, which is focused on bringing computer science education for students around the world. Paul is co-author of highly acclaimed book, Humans and Machines. Paul's been telling us about AI for about a decade. Uh, he's also a co-author of Radically Human. I don't leave anywhere without these books. By the way, uh, all I know about machines, algorithms, software, impact of AI is because of Paul and his annual report, Tech Vision, which we're going to talk about. For nearly a decade, he's been writing about AI technologies and emerging tech. He's a great follow on Twitter at Paul Daw, P-A-U-L-D-A-U-G-H. And he's the 1,000th interview on the Schwab right. He helped okay. us launch our podcast in 2016, and he's been gracious enough to be here with us today. Thank you, Paul. Welcome back. It's great to be here. This is uh, among the most fun 20 minutes of the, of, the, uh, <laughs> of the year every time we talk. So we're looking forward to it. Thanks, Jeff. Well, hey, Paul, I mean, five years ago, you wrote a book called AI, called Human Plus Machine, and it was all about AI. And, and when we look back, it was just like yesterday. And now we're talking generative AI, chat GPT, stable diffusion. And you know what? It's reneging the whole debate on whether AI is going to replace workers or give them the tools to do their jobs better. Let's start there. What's your view? How's this all going to play out? Yeah, we're actually considering a, kind of a new edition of the book because the, the, the principles we wrote about in the book, I think, hold true. Uh, with what we're talking about with uh, with generative AI, and we did kind of talk about you know that the advances leading to generative AI when when we wrote that book and the subsequent book, and you know fundamentally, uh, like any technology, of course, generative AI is going to have tremendous impact on what we all do as people, the way we work, live, and play. Every technology uh, does that, uh, and there's a lot of focus right now and a lot of concern about generative AI and is it different? Is it going to create a different level of impact? On, uh, on what we all do. So we, we've done some research around that. We dug in and it, it is gonna have a lot of impact on what we do. Uh, we've uh, done some research that shows that generative AI will impact 40% of the working hours kind of across, generally speaking, across industries and across companies. So 40% of working hours impacted by generative AI. So that's a lot, that's a big impact. Uh, but that does not mean that 40% of jobs go away. And to understand you know, the impact, you have to kind of really think about what generative AI is, which is it's a tool that's going to help people do certain tasks more effectively. It's going to help you find information, understand what companies are doing uh, and such. And so there's going to be an automation effect where generative AI can replace some jobs. We believe the far bigger effect is an augmentation effect you know, where every every worker, you know, as we look going forward, every person will have a co-pilot or multiple co-pilots that help us do things more effectively. So the way I like to think about this, what we wrote about in Human Plus Machine, is this idea that AI gives people superpowers. You just AI gives people superpowers, and that in the form of these co-pilots that can allow us to do, do new things, and we can dive into that a little bit more. But broadly speaking, we see five categories in which AI, which generative AI specifically, is going to give us superpowers, give people superpowers to do more. 
It's in uh, the way the ways that it'll provide advisory services, such as you know uh, co-pilots to help uh, salespeople sell more effectively. Uh, the way it's going to help with creative capability, such as the work we're already doing in our business to use uh, Dolly and uh, and uh, 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 video and, and uh, graphical based. Uh, Oh, to, automate the, to automate their post-trade processing. Uh, it's going to help with better securing and protecting enterprises in the way we use it. It's going to help develop technologies, you know, coding more effectively. So you look at all that. I think we're at a, a stage we've talked a lot about Moore's Law for computing. Mm. And I think what the real potential uh, going forward is more of a Moore's Law for people where generative AI can help us, you know, dramatically and almost instantaneously extend the skills of people in new ways. You, it's amazing uh, to... Uh to continuously get incredible advice from you. You recently wrote a Fortune article about um, generative AI. You said there's only been four moments in your life where you were fully amazed by technology. 1983, Apple, Lisa, graphical user interface. You referenced that. 1992, the first web browser. Uh, and the web was launched, I think, officially in 1993. And in 2007, yeah. iPhone. Um, and then last year, November, uh, when we saw... And of course, you've been covering this for... Yeah many, many years. So you, you and Accenture have a view on how companies can benefit from Gen AI and large language models. My question to you is how should companies, what should companies be doing right now to, to, to not only get in the game, but actually score some points? <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, as large enterprises trying to adopt these emerging technologies, as you noted in your article, there's a lot of guardrails and ethical use and a lot of governance that needs to also be managed, especially with this, this new set of capabilities. Yeah. You just yeah, can't so, jump in. So. <laughs> yeah. I think the, um, uh, you know, the, the, I think you need to start by stepping back and getting some perspective. First of all, and that's what we're, you know, working with a lot of companies on and, uh, AI has been around for 70 years. Uh, we wrote about that in the, in the book and mentioned that in the, the article you mentioned. And uh, generative AI is the latest in a series of advances in artificial intelligence that have been game-changing. And I'd, I'd say there's been three advances. Uh, there's There was the diagnostic AI, which was machine learning and tools you could use to do things like identify anomalies in radio, radiological exams and things like that. That was diagnostic. There's predictive AI, which you know came about because of advances in uh, neural networks and uh, convolutional neural networks and such enabled things like computer computer vision and, uh, and other things. And also allowed us to do predictive AI, like uh, predicting my retail sales, uh, my retail store demand might be. So you've had diagnostic and predictive. Now you have generative, which means you can, you can create and enable new capabilities. AI can create uh, new things. But one thing that's really important to understand is the other two are still really important. And I, I think one of the mistakes that companies can make is to assume everything should be solved by generative AI. If, uh, if you have a, if you're a manufacturer and want to do uh, use AI for inspection of what you're producing to look for defects. You don't need generative AI. You can use, again, machine vision and other techniques to do that very cost effectively. So one, one piece of advice for companies is look holistically at AI and how you can apply and look then at where generative AI and the, the newest advances can do even more than you could with the other forms of AI. And uh, make sure you're not also not applying generative AI to things that can be solved in other ways. And then as you, as you dig into it, uh, you know, the... Uh, there's a variety of steps that you need to take to really get the value from uh, from uh, 
uh, from generative AI. And what we you know advise companies on is first of all, you have to decide and look at you know the vast array of models out there and decide how you're going to use them. You can consume existing models, like just use it out of the box, like you can do with ChatGPT, or you can tune and customize models. And we think for enterprises, it's going to be a, a, a range of use of models from you know just consuming or using them to, in some cases, fine-tuning and customizing, or maybe even developing your own models for certain unique domains that you have. And then when you look to, to really take advantage of, of generative AI, it's not just about the models. I'd say the models and all the work around that is probably 20% of getting the value of it. You need to also do a lot of work around your data to get your data ready. You need to select the right model. You need to tune and you know, tune and train the model properly. Uh, you then need to uh, integrate the, the model into your technology. So if you're in a call center, you can use a generative AI to help the you know, call center operate more effectively. A lot of integration with the technology. Can it perform? Can it scale? Does it work right? Is it accurate? And you need to do all the testing around that. Then you need to change the processes so they're different. You know, so people understand how the process is different when they work with a co-pilot and do things differently. And the change management, the training around that. And then there's operationalizing all this in the feedback loop to make it effective. And I think that's what, we're, what you really need to look at is not just you know the model, you know, selecting a model, what it can do, but how do you really implement it and integrate it across your business to really drive the impact you want and start creating that discipline to do it today. No, let's make a lot of sense. And one of the interesting things as you're talking about that, you put out a very interesting set of principles around uh, ways of co-working, right? And this is going to be very important, right? As we look at augmentation and we always talk about how AI, you, you can have full intelligent automation, right? At some point you'll have augmenting the machine with the human as we get to removing yeah. false positives, false negatives, training these systems, understanding why we make, you know, like the exceptions that we do and then augmenting the human with the machine so we can actually co-pilot, co-work uh, in a way that's super powerful. And then of course, there's places where we're going to need human touch. So let's go deeper on that area around co-working and, uh, you know, different potential ways to do it because you laid it out in a very, very clear manner. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, uh, I mean, think about how do you, how do you, you know, how do you create the co-pilots and how do you, how does work really change? The uh, kind of talk about some of those elements I mentioned earlier with those five steps. I mean, think about advisory, you know, kind of creating advisors for people uh, in a, um, uh, in, a, in a sales scenario, like I mentioned, we're, we're actually doing this for a company, a global company right now, uh, deploying a, a large language model, a foundation model, to help their customer service agents service customers more effectively. It can understand, you know, the context of what the customer is requesting. It can access information, uh, technical manuals, and all sorts of other things, and summarize what the, what information might best help the person answer the customer's question. It can suggest yeah. cross-polling opportunities. Uh, that's that's kind of an example of how to you know how to get the you know the capability uh, working together. Another example I, I mentioned briefly this uh, a large bank where we're uh, using a, again a, a GPT model to help them do their their settlements more effectively. This involves you know having a model that can read emails, which otherwise people would have to read tens of thousands of e emails on a daily basis. Summarize what's happening in the emails, correlate it to transaction activity that's happening in the systems, and then create. You know, summarize the actions that humans, you know, people can review, and then act on in a you know, much, much more efficient manner than the previous way of doing things. So, the, the work becomes, you know, the work is is uh, structured in a way where you can really apply the human insights more effectively, less, you know, drudgery and kind of sorting through lots of emails and transactions, and much more you know, productive and accurate results for the company. That so those are some some of the kind of examples of how how you integrate it together. Yeah, and. and you also yeah. talk about this enterprise protector using AI yeah. to actually provide security. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the creative yeah, the partner, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's wild. Yeah, 
Yeah, the protect is one of the categories I think is overlooked. Uh, if again, what the big advance here is, is large language models, in which is, is as it implies, is dealing with language. If you think about yeah. regulation, if you think about law, if you think about yeah. policy, uh, it's perfect for these mod models. So one of the things we're working on with uh, with with a number of companies is uh, co-pilots that can help understand the regulations you need to apply. Because it's hard if you when a lot of the breaches in this uh, the, in these things are people that you know can't follow exactly how to operate it according to the regulations, how can you use co-pilots to make that you know, super yeah. easy and seamless for people to operate in? And that's uh, one of the exciting areas. And also in other areas in safety, again, uh, are workers aware of the latest conditions that are happening and how to no. deal with them and best practices? We're working with an energy company on this. I'm, I'm looking at how uh, foundation models and generative AI can help them create more safe working environments uh, in that protect category. So lots of opportunity that sometimes doesn't you know, appear at the forefront when you I highly, I highly encourage our viewers to just Google Paul Fortune article, incredibly robust article talking about these categories we're talking about. I'm going to shift a little bit. This will be my last question. I'm a big fan of the, your annual Accenture Technology Vision Report, mainly because you've helped me gain about a couple hundred thousand Twitter followers. And annually, it's my most popular <laughs> ZDNet article. So I owe you and your team big time because of this annual report. And what I'm amazed is, yeah, you know, uh, OpenAI was founded in 2015, but the world really found out about large language gen, uh, uh, GPT in November of 22, shortly after you come up with this vision report and you have an incredibly robust section about uh, foundational models. Yeah. So a must read vision report if you want to understand, truly understand the impact of this, but you also highlighted other trends outside of gen uh, AI. Can you share some of those other trends with us as well? Yeah, we have, uh, you know, one of the things we do year round, we have a, a Central Labs, which is our research organization, and they, they've been doing research around uh, large language models, transformer technology and such for a while. So, and, and, the, and they're looking ahead, uh, you know, looking ahead at the next things that are coming. And one thing I'll, I'll say is based on the, the work we're doing is as exciting as generative AI is, and I just described it as the third biggest advance uh, that's come along in AI, it's not the last and probably not the biggest breakthrough that we'll see in AI. There'll be other bigger breakthroughs coming, common sense AI and other domains that'll be even more impactful. So stay tuned uh, you know, for what's what's uh, coming and gonna happen. Uh, but to our vision, we work on this year round, we're already working on next year's vision, but I, I can't talk to you about all of that uh, right now. Uh, and- uh, We're okay, you can share. <laughs> it's a little bit. Uh, but the, uh, the title of this year's vision, which just came out a couple of months ago, was called uh, was called uh, when atoms meet bits, the foundation yeah. of our shared reality, and it's talk. So it's think atoms, the physical world, and bits. And what we're talking about is um, we've been focused on the digital world for so long and how technology can create and shape the digital world. And our 2013 vision that I wrote was titled. Every business is a digital business. That's ten years ago. We said every business is a digital business. You must have got a lot of flack for that one. We got a lot of flack. I spent a lot of time defending that and getting yelled at for a while. Boy, it's so nice to be right. <laughs> it became, uh, it became you know, kind of well accepted over time. So, and uh, but what we're saying this year, now ten years later, is the next stage of digital is digital plus physical, when the atoms beat the bits. And it's about how generative AI is combining and fusing the human capability with the technologies I talked about. It's talking about the metaverse, which is again a lot of lot of flack being directed at the metaverse right now. And I think the word is becoming a bit of a, a boat anchor. But the concepts underlying metaverse, shared experiences, new digital ownership, are are trends that we're talking about in the vision. That is real and that is moving fast. Just wait and see what Apple's going to uh, announce shortly as an example. And um, 
and, and think about how, you know, our, currently our physical world, and our digital world are separate. That's all come together. And that's what Adam's Meat Bits. We believe that's the next stage and every company needs to look at does your digital strategy anticipate digital plus physical? One of the, I'll just highlight one of the trends since we don't have a lot of time. Uh, we talk about generative AI and a lot of that uh, related things there. We talk about digital identity and blockchain and lots of, uh, lots of uh, concepts around that. But one of the trends is forever frontier and it's talking about the next generation of where technology is going. So techno technology has gone from the back office, you know, digital in the back office, to digital in the front office and how we engage with consumers, to digital and manufacturing with OT, the operational technology. So we've gone from IT, information technology, to OT, operational technology. And with Forever Frontier, we're talking about ST, science technology, computational chemistry, synthetic biology, generative AI in pharmaceutical and drug discovery. So digital is changing how we invent and make things. And that has even bigger implications than what we've seen with IT and OT. And uh, that's kind of what we talked about there. In addition to new forms of compute, like quantum computing and biocomputing and things that, that are having material and real impacts on companies today. Paul, you have the best job in the world. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I mean, you guys in the catbird seat talking to everybody. So I, I love the, the job. On the forefront <laughs> of leading innovation and technology. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you, sir. Yeah, no. And Forever Frontier was my favorite one part of this. And, and we're seeing that happen, right? Things like immersive AI. We're seeing like extensions of what that hyper reality is for biochemistry, physics, material science are all coming back to us. It's, it's very, very interesting. And it's all being digitized from atoms to bits. So yeah, very, no, very amazing. Well. I'll be watching my mail for the, the watch that I get for the Be the 1000th guest. I guess there's a, a gold watch. Is that what I'm There's got to at least be a Saturday Night Live jacket. There's got to be something. Yeah. Stay we, tuned. We got to get a Disrupt TV jacket. Stay tuned. Yeah. We're here with Paul Doherty, Group Chief Executive Technology and Chief Technology Officer at Accenture. You can follow him on Twitter at Paul Dog, D A U G H. And thank you so much for being on the show and being our thousandth interview. So thank you, Paul. Thanks, thank guys. You, fun. Cheers. Expand your mind. I mean, you know, I mean, we could, uh, yeah, he's, and it's, it's we could expand our mind, but week. we've, listen, uh, we've, again, we have interviewed a thousand, but I'm not sure if you ever show. Uri <laughs> <Uri> Levine <laughs> is a passionate entrepreneur and a two time unicorn builder and author of Just Read His Shirt, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. This is a handbook. For entrepreneurs, Uri is the co-founder of Waze, the world's largest community-based driving traffic and navigation app, which Google acquired for over a billion dollars, and former investor board member of Move It, uh, Waze Public Transformation, which Intel acquired for over a billion dollars. Uri's vision is building startups that are doing good and doing well, focusing on solving problems and hence changing the world for the better. Uri has been in the high-tech business for the last 40 years. He must have started when he was like five. He doesn't look like he's been 40 years. More than half of them <laughs> in the startup scene uh, as, as, and has seen everything ranging from failure to moderate success to massive success. You can follow Uri on Twitter at U-R-I-L-E-V-I-N-E -E number one. Welcome, Uri, to Disrupt TV. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for being here. Yuri, Two thank you so unicorn. much for being here. 
It's amazing. Um, and the book, there's a lot. And the book just came out January this year. Um, and, and one of the things that it addresses is an important question everybody has. Like, is that idea big enough to become a startup? Uh, and, and is that something that you know can actually take it to the next level? And you, you actually do a good job of actually explaining that. So let me turn it over to you to kind of explain when can an idea or is an idea big enough to become a startup? So, well, you know, for me, the starting point is always the same. Start with a problem. Think of a problem, a big problem, something that it's worth solving, something that the world will become a better place if you solve that. And then ask yourself, so who has this problem? If you happen to be the only person on the planet with this problem, you know what? Go to a shrink. <laughs> Way cheaper than building a planet. But if a lot of people... Go to a shrink. What you really want to do next is go and speak with those people and understand yep. their perception of the problem, and only then go and build the solution. Now, if you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed that you're creating value. If you start with the solution, you might be building something that no one cares, and that's going to be really frustrating. Now, when you have these dialogues with potential users, if the problem is relevant for them, they're going to echo back their, their, you know, their view of the problem, and they're going to send you on a mission. And this is where you're going to fall in love with the problem. And when you are in love with the problem, <clears throat> the problem is going to serve two purposes. The first one is that this is going to be the North Star of your journey. And if you have a North Star, then you are way more likely to become successful. The second part is that your story is going to be way more compelling. Just imagine that we will be here in 2007 and I will tell you, oh, you know, I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system. And everyone is going to say, yeah, very interesting but no one cares. If I will tell you I'm gonna help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. And this is what <laughs> makes your journey way better if you start with the problem. When did you flip the switch? I mean, I don't recall in school, uh, uh, entrepreneurs or future entrepreneurs thinking about the problem versus the solution. It seems like we have a tendency of uh, describing what we do based on shiny new technology versus simple language that says avoid traffic jams. Was it a mentor, a sponsor? Was it just repeated success or failures? How did you, how did you shift your mind to focus not on the solution, but on the problem? So, so I think that this is a combination of multiple things, but, but with many of my ideas, when I, he was young and came to my dad and asked for his point of view. He would ask me one thing, why? Why do you even care? Why do people care, right? And the why is the problem, right? The why is the reason. The why is what's going to lead into the value creation that is so critical uh, in order to be successful. Because at the end of the day, mm. entrepreneurship journey is about value creation. And this journey is going to be very challenging, right? This is going to be a long roller coaster journey of failures, and each one of them is really important, right? So, so it's going to be a roller coaster journey with ups and downs and ups. And, and if you tell me that all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, I agree. But the frequency of those when you're building a startup is way higher. And I think that I heard the best quote on that from Ben Horwitz from a recent Horwitz venture capital firm. And before that, he used to be a CEO of a startup, and he was asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO of a startup, and said, Oh, yeah. Slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. And that's really the reality. <laughs> but 
equally important, this is going to be a journey of failures, right? So, so look, we, we think we know exactly what we're doing, but we don't. So we try, we try one thing and it doesn't work. We try another thing and it doesn't work. We keep on trying different things until we find one thing that does work. Now, if you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then if you're afraid to fail, in reality, you already fail because you're not going to try. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed that because you haven't tried anything new before, if you're going to try new things, you will fail. And therefore, we need to encourage people around us and ourselves, of course, to fail. You need to teach your kids to fail. That's it. Because this is yeah. what's going to empower them to become more successful. The other part is that as soon as you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then you need to fail fast. Because when mm. you fail fast, you still have plenty of time to make another attempt, try a different approach, mm. do a different version of it, keep on trying different things until you find one thing that does work. And if you have more tries, more attempts than anyone else, then you are way more likely to be successful. Just imagine you're trying to score you know, a basketball from half court, right? Now, if you're not Steph Curry and you have one shot, you are going to move. <laughs> if you have multiple shots, you're way more likely to make one of them. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So I this ten is, shots, no, I think I can get it. <laughs> more, no. more at bats. But, but related to that, right, is, is also the people, the culture, the type of folks you hmm. bring into the organization. And and you said something that's very interesting. It's uh, fire and then hire, right? And that's a very interesting statement in terms of the order of that, in terms of how people view things, like uh, how to fire and hire. Normally people talk about hire and fire in that order. Um, how does this impact team fit and culture? So, so you're right, you know, when I wrote this book, uh, I called this chapter Firing and Hiring. And obviously I sent the book proposal to multiple publishers and they told me, no, no, it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no. Firing is hard decision. <laughs> hiring is easy decision. You first of all have to learn how to make hard decisions. And this is coming from, you know, my dialogues with multiple entrepreneurs that their startup failed and ask them why. What happened, right? And about half told me the team was not right. And I kept on asking, yeah. okay, what if yeah. the team was not right? And I, you know, I heard this guy was not good enough and this guy. So not good enough was the main reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had a communication issue, right? Something that I actually called ego management issues, right? <laughs> but then I said the most interesting question, when did you know that the team is not right? Mm. All of them within the first month. So he said, wait a minute, if you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, the problem was not that the team was not right, the problem was that it the CEO did not make hard decision. Making hard decisions is hard. Now the challenge, if you're not making those decisions, then two things happen, right? So number one, you are stuck with people that shouldn't be there, which is by itself yeah. is not a good idea. The other part is even worse. The top performing people, they would leave. Mm. They would yep. leave because they don't want to be in an organization that is unable to make the hard decisions. And they would leave because they have a choice. That's so it's even bigger impact than that, right? Because if you think of a path for, to awesomeness, and for a second, I would ask you the following, right? Just imagine startup is a small organization, right? Maybe 10, 20, yeah. 30, 40 people. If there is someone that shouldn't be there, everyone knows. Yeah. Everyone yes. knows, and the CEO doesn't do anything. That's the nature of the beast. It's and even worse. It's... If you want to create an awesome organization, I would ask you the following, right? All large organizations in the world, anything that has to do with 
large number will end up with a normal distribution. Like we have this normal distribution. <laughs> people and very good people and good people and less than good people and a group of people that shouldn't be there. Let me ask you the following. If you want to create a better organization and you only have two choices and you have to pick one, bring another awesome guy, get rid of someone that shouldn't be there. What will make a bigger impact? Mm. The answer is get rid of someone that shouldn't be there because everyone knows. So my book is about firing and hiring. And I start with the firing because my, my book, the chapter about firing and hiring is about exactly that. And I start with the firing and I end up with a very important insight. If within a month, everyone knows, then every time that you're going to hire a new person, mark your calendars for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, then fire them immediately because they're not going to be successful. If the answer is yes, however, go and tell that person that they exceed your expectations. And if you can give them more options or equity in the company, that would be an amazing time to do that. Yeah. Wow. What great, great, great advice. I don't think I realized the importance of firing maybe five to 10 years into my management career because when you devote so much of your time and energy to be a mentor and a sponsor, you almost view it as a personal failure when someone's not meeting your expectations. So you try to coach a bit more, you try to mentor more, you spend more time with them only to realize that the team knows. And by you not making a decision, it's a reflection of your ability to lead. Hugely important advice. Um, Okay, does your ability to demonstrate that you can make difficult decisions help you raise money with investors? Because early the last year has been pretty difficult for startup founders. What advice do you have? What sage advice you have as a two-time unicorn pioneer entrepreneur? How do we raise money in this climate? So, so let me start by saying that if we compare the journey of building a startup into a roller coaster journey, then raising capital will be roller coaster journey in the dark. You don't even know what's coming. And in particular, if this is your first time of raising capital, then you are so much far off of understanding the rules of the game. And if you don't understand the rules of the game, you're playing a different game. And and guess what? You're going to lose. So the first thing that you need to realize is, is actually have someone to explain to you the VC industry and understand how they think and what matters to them and only then start to think about raising capital. In general, I would say this time around, it's very hard. But companies that actually have successful traction and have the right DNA of the, of the people and have a problem that it's worth solving are able to raise capital even in today's market. Obviously not the valuation that we have seen 18 months ago, sure. but uh, raising capital is about refueling your vehicle to go on the journey. And it's not about anything else, right? Because the day after, if you have enough fuel, then you go on the journey. So a few things that I've learned over the years about raising capital, and this is scary, right? Because uh, if you're a first-time entrepreneur, it doesn't even cross your mind, right? So, so just after the Waze acquisitions, I met with one of the um, general partners at, the, at an Israeli VC and asked them, how long does it take you to decide if you like the entrepreneur or not? And we were sitting in a small meeting room, right? So the guy is looking at me and looking at the door and looking at me again and says, before they sit down. 
And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. How long does it take us to establish the first impression on a candidate for a job? Second, how long does it take us to establish the, the first impression on a date that we are going on? Seconds. It's always a matter yeah. of seconds. And then we might have a few more minutes that we either let that first impression solidifies yes. or we change it, right? And so if this is the case, then you are going to tell a story. You have to start with the strongest point at the beginning because by the time you'll get there, it might be too late. And I don't care if the strongest point is about the size of the problem, about how smart your team is, about traction that you have, about you know the 17 patents that you are. I don't care what it is. Start with that. And, and then the second thing is that I spoke with, you know, with a lot of investors that invested the first investing round, right? So it could be seed or pre-seed or A round or whatever it is. And ask them why. Why did you decide to invest in this company and this company and this company? What I heard was very consistent. I like the CEO. I like the story. That's it. I like the CEO. I like the story. Wow. Now, if this is the case, then the CEO needs to go alone to the meeting because he wow. needs to shine. And in order for you to shine, you don't want any disruptions, right? You want the entire stage for yourself. You want the headlight to be on you and not switching to someone else, right? And so you need to go by yourself. The second part is you have to learn how to tell a good story. And good story is about creating emotional engagement. What you really want is the listener to believe that they are part of the story. They, you want them to be to want to be part of the story, and this is not necessarily about facts. Now, if you ask me, I will tell you, you know, telling a problem story way more engaging than telling a solution story. Yeah, yeah, no, and people get enthralled with the problem. But you actually describe something that's also very interesting in this book, and this is like one of the things that they they say even in investments and investment strategy: knowing when to buy is easy, knowing when to sell is hard. Same thing with startups. When is it time to sell and move on? And you've done an amazing job knowing when to move on and take it to the next level, or give it to someone else to take it to the next level. And that's gotta be a hard decision because as a startup, it's your baby, right? It's, it's you've put in all that time, that effort, that sweat, the equity, the emotion into it, and then make that decision to let go. That's, that's, that's like an incredible hard decision to do. What, what is the structure behind that? How do you think through that? So, um, so number one, this is going to be emotional and personal, right? So whatever I'll tell you as a, as a cookbook to do to make the decision, it doesn't going to make any difference. But at the end of the day, you will need to follow your gut feeling. Mm -hmm. But in general, if people ask me, when is the right time to sell? So, you know, number one is that you need to get an offer. <laughs> Once you get an offer, then you need to look at it in, in, I would say, in three different dimensions, right? The first one, whether or not this is going to be a life-changing event for you. If it is, then start to consider it favorably. If it's not, then keep on building value. That's it. Simple as that. Number two, is that going to be a life-changing event for the entire team, for all those people that help you to build this value throughout the years? And if it is, then start to think about it even more favorably. And even if it's not for you, but it is for them, think about it favorably. If it's not, then in the negotiation, make sure that you make it life-changing event for them because you have plenty of ability, plenty of room to negotiate different structures of the deal to make it such for them. And then the third question would be, is this company going to be once in a lifetime for you or you believe that you're going to build more startups? 
And if you believe that you're going to build more startups, then it's time to move on. But, uh, when we sold Waze, I was already in a process of building a movie and Pontera. Um, and, uh, and that was easy decision for me back then, right? Because I saw myself as keep on building different startups. And now I have about 10 of those that each one of them is, you know, trying to solve a problem, trying to create value, try to do good and do well at the same time. And, and, uh, you know, I have, uh, you know, two unicorns up until now, which is pretty rare. There are less than a hundred people on the planet that have built, uh, but I'm building more. And so I'm will building be more because there are more problems that you've fallen in love with. You know, the good news is that there are a lot of problems, right? The bad news is that there are a lot of problems, right? That's it. <laughs> That's amazing. It's such an honor to have uh, you on the show. And everything you said was incredible sage advice. Uh, common, it feels to me common sense advice. But as I reflect on my own career, I didn't have the common sense to do some of the things that you said I should have done. So uh, thank you for writing a book to help you know, entrepreneurs learn from your lessons. It's, 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 it's you great, know, uh, great I service. Agree. It is Steve, an amazing uh, book. Steve We're here with Yuri out. Levine, two-time unicorn builder, Ways and Move It, and author of Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. Book came out in January. Definitely get this book. I every entrepreneur sure. and every sure. Fortune 500 startup, <laughs> get the, 500 CEO should get this to think like a startup. And more importantly, follow him on Twitter at Yuri Levine One. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy Friday. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, I certainly look forward to his third unicorn and I know it's going to happen. I know. Okay. I can't wait to see what that is. If you're a baseball fan, this is what we call the cleanup hitter spot where we have brilliant guests come in and swing and hit a grand slam. Joe, anyway, I just want no pressure. Uh, Andrea Kramer, Andy, and Alton Harris, Al, uh, are distinguished attorneys married to each other for, I believe, almost 39 years, right around the corner, and co-authors of, this is their third book, uh, Beyond Bias, A Path to End Gender Inequality at Work. For decades, Andy and Al have tackled gender bias in the workplace, through speaking, workshops, articles, blogs, podcasts, counseling, engagements at national, international, business, and professional organizations. Andy and Al have appeared in, you name it, New York Times, Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Forbes, all the major media you can, you can imagine, Andy and Al have, have been there. Andy and Al provide practical techniques that women, men, and organizations can use to prevent gender stereotypes and biases that follow from uh, them from slowing down or derailing women's careers. You can follow Andy and Al, they must have been early adopters on Twitter, at Andy and Al, A-N-D-I-E-A-N-D-A-L. <laughs> Welcome, Andy and Al, to Disrupt TV. Thank, Thank you very you. much for having us. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, no, we're super excited to have you. And one of the interesting things here really is in your book, you talk about um, inequality still here. And let, I mean, I'm surprised. Are you surprised that gender inequality is still such a pervasive problem after all these years? Absolutely. Uh, we've been at this game for a long time. And uh, while we see progress, uh, it's astonishing that really since about the end of the 90s, if we look at the proportion of women in senior business leadership, there's been virtually no movement at all there. 
Uh, one of the things we found in this, in our research for this new book, was that if you look at what the SEC requires publicly held companies to disclose, which is the uh, the name uh, and identity of their CEO, CFO, and three next highest paid uh, employees. If you look at that number across the entire universe of publicly held companies, less than 12%, less than 12% are women, uh, which tells us that the at the top of our uh, business leadership, whether it's corporate, whether it's law firms, whether it's uh, technology companies, it really doesn't matter. Women are just not at the top and they're not moving up to the top. So this new book is our effort to see if we can't move that needle to do something different that really hasn't been done before. And you uh, write that um, anti-bias training doesn't work. <laughs> Uh, so why can't we teach people to shed their prejudices and, uh, you know, combat and eliminate inequality at work? What's holding us back? Well, um, one of the problems with the anti-bias training that um, uh, companies are paying, you know, uh, billions of dollars to, um, to try to implement is that although information is important, and information about information about biases is useful um, to tell somebody, here's what a bias is, here's what the stereotypes are, don't mm. be biased, is useless because they're unconscious biases that we have. And we're not going to, just by having them identified, doesn't bring them to the forefront in a way that's going to allow us to do something about it. And so the current anti-bias training is basically getting us nowhere. And so what oh, we're proposing wow. is to try to do something different. One of the things that we've known for a long time is simply supplying people with information uh, is not transformative. Mm. We can't just learn our way out of bad habits. We can't just tell people don't use drugs and expect them not to use drugs or tell them uh, stop smoking stop smoking and expect them to stop smoking we've got to do something uh, to engage either their emotions or to change the context within which their behavior is formulated and what we've chosen to focus on is that context for action what is it that forms the operational structure of personnel decision-making within organizations? What is it that uh, people follow? What are the processes that they utilize when they are attempting to hire or fire or promote or give assignments or decide on compensation, or decide on promotion. They can't, if we simply let people uh, do that with their gut, 
with their feelings as they believe is the right choice, people will fall back on their stereotypes. They will fall back on people they're comfortable with. They will fall back to choose those who are like them. And that's where we get into problems. Now, you guys talk about a very important methodology, this four-pronged path approach, um, and it's a pathway to actually helping to attack structural discrimination. Talk about the four steps um, in PATH, P-A-T-H. Okay. The, um, uh, in fact, we flailed around for a while trying to figure out how to put it into a word that fits, so it's kind of a mouthful, but the reality is that the first one is to prioritize the elimination of exclusionary behavior. One of the key issues is that exclusionary behavior is a key part of what prevents people from feeling welcomed, comfortable, and in, um, uh, in the organization. And there's a lot that we could talk about and peel back on that, but that's the first one. The second one is to dis to adopt discrimination-resistant methods of personnel decision-making. And basically what we have to do is we have to prevent people from going with their gut because going with your gut, you're gonna make personnel decisions that may have nothing to do with the quality or the, um, uh, the competencies that are needed in order to get the job done. Uh, treat inequality in the home as a workplace problem. And here, we're not talking about the situations where many couples may decide that one is um, that the, the, the husband or the man's career is somehow going to take precedence over hers, which we know does happen. Um, we're talking about the fact that household responsibilities are not um, evenly divided. And so what happens is that it forces women to be in situations where they have less time to commit to work, less time to um, do some of the socializing, the connecting, the, 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 the kind of things that can help them sort of build their, their um, careers. And so we have some techniques and some suggestions about what can be done, not just for women, but for employees generally to allow for um, uh, more, more even playing field, if you will, for, for advancement. And then the last one is to halt unequal performance reviews and career leadership opportunities. What we see is very often that the men are told, this is, it's time for you to, it's time for you to try a new position, or you really ought to put your hat in the ring to do this or that. And women just do not get that same advice. And so PATH is the program. And um, although it may sound overwhelming, basically um, small wins and little bites can make all the difference in the world. And no. even just starting to nibble with um, trying to stop exclusionary behavior can be the impetus to build us to move forward. That's amazing. That's great. Great, great way of, uh, you know, framing the, the purpose and the jobs to be done. Andy, 39 years ago, uh, when you met Al, was it love at first sight because you knew immediately he was going to champion <laughs> gender inequality at work? <laughs> how, did two dis how did two distinguished attorneys 
decide to write three powerful books and find a common cause? And is this the secret to having nearly four decades of amazing uh, home life? Well, that's a that's a that's a very good question. Um, <laughs> I think that what we do we do we sharing objectives, sharing ideas, sharing interests um, makes all the difference in the world. And um, our our legal practices are um, similar, although not identical by any means. And so there was always an opportunity for give and take there. Um, and um, uh, in the context of uh, writing the books, I had, when we, when it was time to write the first book, I went to Al and I said, I want to write this book, but I want to do it with you because it, wow. I, he has the, um, the male perspective, which is similar, but sometimes different from mine. Sure. Um, and, um, quite frankly, if, um, there needs to be more men in the conversation, and there needs to be more men because what happens is people um, uh, think that it's a woman's problem and that mm. somehow women can fix it. And the reality is that it doesn't work that way. It's yeah. an everybody problem. Who gets to pick the title and the color of the book cover? The, the publisher. Love. The publisher. <laughs> Great answer. Great answer, Al. Great. <laughs> the answer to that one. You've been there. <laughs> yeah. No. No. Totally. You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, Ray, you're on mute. <laughs> sorry. No. No. Good answer. Keeping the uh, sirens going off here in Las Vegas. Not sure what's oh, going sorry. on, but um, but yeah. So um, you also in your, your book you also talk about you know specific biases, right? Um, and there are four that you guys hone in on. And, and why are those four there that you honed in more? I'm, I'm sure there's different levels of bias. There's different other biases that are out there. But there's four that, that you identify as prominent or things that you probably see more often than others. Well, I don't know that we see them more often, but we think that these are the operative biases that are holding women and members of uh, disadvantaged groups back. Uh, and to go through the four... The first is affinity bias. This oh, yeah. Is, this is a natural bias. It isn't a socially or culturally inculcated bias. Mm. It's the way that we're evolutionarily programmed. It means that we're more comfortable with people who are like us. Uh, yep. And we can't escape that. The problem mm -hmm. with that bias is that when... For example, men are the dominant senior leaders. senior leaders. That means that their instinct is to reach out to other men, yes. to favor other men, to mentor other men, to assign responsibilities to other men. So the first thing that we've got to combat is that affinity bias. The second is gender bias. This is a socially inculcated bias, we believe, but nonetheless, it's a powerful one. And it is the basic assumption that men and women have different fundamental characteristics. Men are strong, independent, self-reliant, unemotional, rational. Women, on the other hand, are emotional. They are relationship-driven. They are nurturers. They care. They are soft. They are deferential. Those well, are the stereotypes. Those are the by stereotypes the way. that 
Uh, I was getting a little worried here. Yeah. <laughs> it's a you know, he sounds so confident about it, but that's. Those are yeah, the, I was getting a little worried. Like, I was like, okay. <laughs> those are the traditional stereotypes that we have about men and women. The way they operate, yeah. though, is that those male stereotypes are also the identical stereotypes that we have about leaders. So that when we allow those stereotypes to operate, we are inclined, we have a bias towards advancing men. We have a bias against advancing women. In other words, stereotypes operate to advantage the dominant uh, controlling uh, powerful forces in the world. That's two out of four. So the third is outgroup bias. By that, we mean that when we think people are different from us, we often exclude them. We don't want to pay attention to them. And so that when we form cliques within uh, businesses, when we have favored groups, when we have preferential networks. Who do you sit with in the cafeteria or the lunchroom? It yeah. means that yeah. the yeah. outgroups are disadvantaged. And the problem is that the in-groups in most situations are in fact, once again, the host men. So that outgroup bias operates as a further exclusionary force keeping women out of the dominant group. And the last is, what we call a status quo bias. That is, we prefer uh, to stick with what we know. It's hard to get people to change. We're fascinated by these studies of the the interview you just had on uh, startups, because that is all about breaking uh, the status quo. It's about disrupting things. It's by focusing on a problem that needs to be solved. Well, one of the reasons that that's hard is that people don't like to change the way they uh, have behaved in the past. They like the processes by which they have promoted people. They like the processes by which they have operated. And so we've got to combat those. So those are the four biases that we think are the most important uh, operating to discriminate against women and members of disadvantaged groups. Terrific summary. Terrific. Yeah, it's like high school clicks all over again, Bob. Yeah, yeah. I was never at the popular table. I was never at the popular table either. I mean, like, what's going on here? (laughs) So this is awesome. Yeah, right. We we learned. learned. We learned. You get tough. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly We right. are here with Andy Kramer, Al Harris, authors of the book, Beyond Bias, The Path, the secrets of the word, The Path to End Gender Inequality at Work. You can follow him on Twitter at Andy, A-N-D-I-E, and Al, A-L. And of course, you can find their book on Amazon, just newly released two days ago. Congratulations. Yeah. yeah, congratulations. Thank well, you. Well, thank you very much. We're excited about it. You should be. It's a great book. Thank you. And congrats on your third one. You. Third one. And happy anniversary. It's around the corner. 39 years. That's amazing. Great. 39 Thank years. So happy Friday as well. Congratulations. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Cheers. All right. <laughs> wow. I got to see you live this week. 
That was pretty cool. That was, it was awesome to see you. We had many amazing meals together. Uh, well, you know, one amazing lunch, one amazing dinner uh, with entrepreneurs, with physicians, with design experts, with, uh, yeah, lots of different incredible people in your circle. You certainly have a very inclusive mindset in that when I'm with you, I'm always surrounded by diversity of age, gender, ethnicity, job function, industry. So uh, you live you live uh, by those uh, by the ethos of the last guest talking about the importance of inclusivity. Uh, please summarize the last hour for us. First of all, it it felt like five minutes for me. I could we could have <laughs> talked with Paul, Uri, and 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 Andy and Al for an hour each. But give me a give me a one minute summary of the last hour, please. Uh, look, we had four incredible individuals on the show, and and really um, the ideas here um, are really expansions upon things that we've all seen and are starting to see manifest uh, within humanity. The first one is really where AI and where um, humans are going to play a role, and and I think Paul did a wonderful job, really helping us understand why and where and how far this is going to go, right? And and I think we're just at the beginning of that revolution. We're basically about to make that next leap, um, and. And we're at a point where we've got to ask questions. When do we have humans work on stuff? When do we have AI work on things? What are the rules around ethics? Uh, what does that mean when we put all this together? And so I think we're about to see an explosion of new ideas, explosion of new types of work, and uh, a lot of displacement as well. Uh, I think we're going to have to figure out what that means. Uh, and I think that's the societal implications. But in general, right, it's going to be a whole new advancement. Uh, what we learned from Yuri was, was something very different, was really about finding a problem, putting a passion behind that, and really getting a workforce uh, and the right culture to actually take something to the next level. But but I think what was more interesting about what Yuri had, and, and I don't know if you felt this way, Val, as well, was he really distilled it down to some simple concepts about how to make a startup successful. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Very, very successful. They're like the most basic concepts. Like, Show, you know showing it. Showing up as, with, as one that was yeah. brilliant because you know that CEO is about half the equation in terms of investment uh, into your company. And then the fire before hire, in other words, making hard yep. decisions quickly, super simple, super powerful advice. I just very, very distilled to the most like simple yeah. points, right? Yeah. I mean, I was like, yeah. wow, I, I wish I had thought that clearly when yeah. starting a startup. Uh, and then, of course, Andy and Al are addressing an age-old problem. And, and I think um, at a fundamental level, I mean, this is not just on gender bias. This is also when you're thinking about ideas and clicks and revolutions and, and how do you actually change how you bring more people into a, an equation or into a scenario or into a system uh, versus anything else. So some really, really good points on, on addressing uh, yeah. bias, unwanted bias, and, and of course, uh, the approach there. So but yeah, uh, very, very interesting uh, scenario, this a very interesting episode. And of course, our thousandth guest, Paul Doherty. So amazing. That was awesome. That was so, awesome. You know, so. we, we, I don't know if we planned it, but you know, maybe it was coincidental. But Paul, again, was I think guest number 30. And to be guest thousand was pretty cool. That's a good that's a cool milestone. It's been a next great week, run. We're not going to next week. We're not going to have a show. So we'll be back on June 2nd. So this is our last wow. show of May. We get a break. We got a really we smart get a producer. Break. We get a break. I know you and I both <laughs> have been on the road uh, for weeks uh, and it's going to continue to happen. Uh, so episode 324, which will be June 2nd. We have Tiffany Bova, Global uh, Growth Evangelist at Salesforce. Her book, new book is right above my shoulder. So we're going to be talking about her new uh, sure-to-be bestseller. 
We have Priya Krishnan, Chief Digital Officer for Bright Horizon. Priya built the largest childcare uh, organization yep. in India and was named one of the most incredible innovators. And now she's doing that here and globally. And Maura Aarons Mel, author of The Anxious Achiever. I could relate to that. Anxious achiever. <laughs> I'm certainly anxious all the time. Could be one of us. <laughs> so if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Keep recommending guests. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everyone. Take care, everybody.